How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. So I just wanted to do a quick stream, did some looking through the archives, some conversations I had with some friends on this issue uh, over the last two or three years. But I just wanted to discuss Dr. Gavin Ortland's claim that St. Thomas held to sola fide, because I think this suffers really suffers as I've seen in many problems of reading the medievals and then also the classical reformed, the medievals on the Protestant side, then the classical reformed on the Catholic side, or even uh, the Protestant side as well, of ignorance of truly central debates actually that surrounded the classical reformed period. Because if you look back to the era of confessionalization, you'll see that this question was brought up and this question was hotly debated. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, due to, again, a lack of uh, knowledge of the era, uh, you don't get much fruitful dialogue that happens now. So what I wanted to do is I just wanted to explain what St. Thomas from his own corpus meant uh, by the term sola fide uh, when he does say that we are justified by faith alone. Then also look actually into the classical era of the Reformed and see that they too uh, realized that St. Thomas was saying this and consciously chose not to quote him. Uh, and they actually argued against him in St. Thomas's formulation. They explicitly mentioned St. Thomas. Uh, certain authors don't explicitly mention St. Thomas, but that's more so due to um, you don't want to make uh, make it look like you have a greater uh, break off from the medieval church than you already have. Uh, so you might as well quote contemporary authors rather than uh, ancient authors if you're going to fight it. Uh, because again, uh, St. Thomas is an authority and it's recognized on both sides that he is an authority. So uh, you don't want to uh, needlessly uh, disagree with central authorities. But they actually, some authors actually do mention St. Thomas directly. And I'm going to be bringing up a few of these authors, uh, just direct citations, direct quoting from their text, just blocks of citations. Uh, and again, this was a sort of quick thing I did this morning. If I wanted to, I could probably get many more authors. Uh, and if I wanted to even look into Latin texts, it would be even easier to get even more authors. This is just English texts that I happen to find. But yeah, so that's what I'm going to be doing today. But before we continue, uh, do not forget Patreon. Uh, if you become a supporter, you get access to a lot of cool stuff, a lot of extra videos, uh, video series that I do not release to the public, including the uh, videos that I have for my courses. And you also just get to help me. Uh, you get to help me be able to do this and do this a lot more. So uh, remember to become a patron. Uh, that's all I have to say on that. So let us begin. And I did name this uh, Thomistic Sola Fide versus Reform Sola Fide. And uh, I, I, I've now uh, become more warm to the fact that we ought to not shy away from using some of these uh, terms of our enemies. Uh, and it was I realized this during actually my debate with Ubi Petrus on the Filioque. I brought up a text uh, from the Athanasian Creed, then one from St. Fulgentius, where I said, look, they are explicitly talking about the Filioque here. Uh, 
And Ubi responded with, yes, they are talking about the Filioque. The question is, which Filioque are they talking about? And I and that really stuck with me, actually. And, and of course, I uh, argued from context that he was uh, that they were talking about uh, the Latin uh, Florentine doctrine of the Filioque. But I think this is this is very important. We ought not to miss it is you ought not to ask whether St. Thomas uh, believed in sola fide because he explicitly talks about it, but which sola fide uh, did St. Thomas teach and which sola fide do the reform teach and how do they differ? And uh, is it something which is merely material? Is it something which is a formal difference? And we're, we're going to see that, yes, it is a formal difference and both sides recognize this. So uh, first I wanted to bring up the video oh no is it not going to let me play videos through this let me see dang i guess i'll have to just go to twitter to grab this give me one second and as a note i did not watch the whole stream or get the context uh, i just got what i got so if you don't if if somehow i'm misrepresenting him uh that sucks uh <laughs> not not to be so nonchalant about it but um, either way, this will be an important teaching moment, I think. This is something that everybody ought to recognize. So if somebody wants to argue that I'm misinterpreting him, and this is from Alan Rule. Uh, he uh, posted this and it racked up a lot of views, but I just wanted to. And he was specifically uh, talking about Bernard of Clairvaux, and I actually didn't watch the clip at first. I was like, oh, Bernard of Clairvaux, yeah. He believed in sola fide, but so do I. But then I listened to it, and I realized he also mentioned St. Thomas. And that that's where that's where I knew I needed to discuss this. Okay, so let's watch the 12-second clip. There are clear testimonies of sola fide among the fathers, and honestly, into Bernard of Clairvaux, and even certain passages in Thomas Aquinas. It's amazing throughout the medieval era, especially Bernard. Um, so when you get there are clear testimonies of soul. Yeah. So that's about all uh, he's saying there. And, and, it, and at least it's very clear that he is. Uh, he's implying that the, the doctrine of sola fide that Thomas was teaching was the Protestant doctrine of sola fide, because why else would he bring it up? I mean, yes, let me bring up this guy who disagrees with me and then use him. No, no, no. He, he clearly in context, he's uh, he, he's he, he means that St. Thomas is teaching the Protestant doctrine of sola fide. So let's look look through uh, St. Thomas's statements on this. So there's two, well, there's one famous section that everybody always goes to. And there's a second one, uh, which is, uh, I think, even more uh, intense. So the first one is in his Galatians commentary uh, on the uh, third chapter, and then it's the ninth lecture. He says, quote, if then you are the sons of God by faith, why do you wish to become slaves by the observances of the law? For faith alone makes man the adopted son of God. Indeed, no one is an adopted son unless he is united to and cleaves to the natural son. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be made conformable to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. For faith makes us sons in Jesus Christ, that Christ may dwell by faith in your hearts. And this in Christ Jesus, i.e. you are the sons of God through Christ Jesus. And as you see, it's just a conglomeration of a lot of uh, scriptural passages, but he does explicitly interpret uh, the, the faith that we are made sons of God by as faith alone. And then he uh, says that it is 
No, that's in the next passage. So yes, uh, St. Thomas does gloss this as faith alone. And then the the second passage is from his commentary on 1 Timothy, first chapter, third lecture. He says, but the apostle seems to be speaking of the moral precepts. Because he continues by saying that the law was made for sinners, and these are moral precepts. The proper use of these precepts is that a man not attribute more to them than is contained in them. For the law was not given in order that sin be recognized. For the law was given in order that sin be recognized. For I had not known concupiscence, if the law did not say, you shall not covet. Therefore, the hope of justification must not be placed in them, that is, the moral precepts, but in faith alone. We account a man to be justified by faith without the works of the law. So again, he is here even more explicitly contrasting our justification by uh, works of the law versus our justification, and then then uh, moral precepts, actually. He, he clarifies that they are moral precepts, versus our justification by faith alone. So yes, St. Thomas is using the phrase in the context of justification and uh, saying that it is not the works of the law or uh, moral precepts which are justifying us. Okay, so very clear. We all agree. Yes, St. Thomas affirms a sola fide, but which sola fide? So uh, in other passages, which uh, you, you'll, you'll see why uh, these passages aren't the passages which are uh, quoted, but St. Thomas actually makes a distinction. Uh, he actually explains what he means by sola fide. What, what, what does he mean by fide? He, he tells us. And uh, if, if somebody, really, if anybody has a very, um, and, and I'm not saying that, I'm not faulting Dr. Ortland for this, because um, people just have their specific areas of theology that they are well studied and you can't just study every single one of them for me it happens to be saint thomas for him it happens to be other things so if if anybody has a very deep knowledge on saint thomas's tract on grace which is found uh, near the end of prima secundae i think it's question 109 through question 114 yeah it's question 109 through question 114 if you have a uh, knowledge of that, and then also his uh, tract on faith, which is in the beginning of Secunda Secunde. If you are well-read in these areas, and then also in his commentaries on the Pauline epistles, you would very easily recognize that, no, St. Thomas is not saying the, the same thing as the Protestants are. St. Thomas is saying something completely different. So these are some of the quotes uh, where, where St. Thomas does uh, explain what he means. So he says, first, dead faith does not suffice for salvation, nor uh, is it the foundation, but living faith alone that worketh by charity, as St. Augustine says. So specifically, he means living faith uh, as opposed to dead faith. So he's taking from uh, the epistle of St. James here. But what does he mean by living faith? So he explains in uh, two other sections in his Romans commentary. The first one in chapter one, lecture six, he says, For virtue is a principle of a perfect act, but an act depending on two principles cannot be perfect. If, if either one of these principles lacks its perfection, just as riding cannot be perfect if the horse does not run well or the rider does not know how to guide the horse. Now, the act of faith, which is to believe, depends on the intellect. And on the will moving the intellect to assent. Uh, the, the will is involved in moving the intellect to assent. So with the uh, perfect assent of faith, there's required the, both the perfection of the intellect and the perfection of the will. Hence, the act of faith will be perfect if the will is perfected by the habit of charity and the intellect by the habit of faith. 
but not if the habit of charity is lacking. Consequently, faith formed by charity is a virtue, but not unformed faith. So we have here, he explains, what does he mean by living faith? What does he mean by that faith which justifies us uh, alone? He means faith which is formed by charity. And he explains further in Romans chapter 3, lecture 3. But this faith out of which justice exists is not the unformed faith about which James says faith without works is dead, but it is faith formed by charity. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything without faith through which Christ dwells in us, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, which does not happen without charity. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. This is the faith about which it is said he cleansed their hearts by faith, a cleansing that does not occur without charity. Love covers all offenses. So we see faith is only the perfect act of faith, which which uh, justifies us, if it is formed by hope. And I'm going to explain these terms uh, for people who aren't aware of uh, St. Thomas's terminology. So this is what's called uh, by later scholastics, fides formata, or, or formed faith. And uh, I'm going to explain all of, of the terms. So faith, uh, because faith is often used in many different senses, faith for St. Thomas uh, means a firm assent of the intellect on the basis of God revealing. So faith is an act of the intellect. And charity is an act of the will towards the object of one's love. So in the living faith, there's both an act of the intellect, which assents firmly on the basis of God revealing, and there's an act of the will towards the object of one's love. And then the relationship between faith and charity is that uh, between matter and form. So what is matter and form? What do we mean by faith that is formed by charity? So you can think of matter and form like the relationship between the body and the soul. So the body without the soul is dead. The, the body without the soul is just a rotting corpse. And faith without charity is that rotting corpse. Now, charity comes in. Charity is that vivifying principle that enlivens and uh, brings to life faith. So there is this intricate relationship between faith and charity. Faith forms charity. So, uh, and then his argumentation uh, for this is because of the ascent of faith. Uh, ascending requires the will, as we already saw in his uh, Romans commentary. He explains why this is, because since there is a the, the faith needs to be a perfect act, um, and the will is involved. The will, the act of the will needs to be a perfect act. Now, the perfect act of the will is the habit of charity, or the act of charity, that is. So uh, this brings about the distinction between dead and living faith. The rotting corpse or dead faith is going to be faith without charity, wherein live in faith is going to be faith which is formed by charity. Now, how do how do Protestants define faith? Because Protestants don't accept this definition of faith as a firm assent of the intellect on the basis of God feeling. They're going to say that uh, actually faith means something completely different. And I took all of these, uh, if you want to, if anybody wants to pretend that I am somehow ignorant of the Protestant view or that I am straw manning or anything, I, I just directly quoted a bunch from Petrus von Maastricht, uh, who is one of the um, high scholastic reformed authors.
so uh, first, Protestants distinguish four kinds of faith. Um, later authors uh, usually do three, but earlier authors do four. So uh, divine faith distinguishes uh, these three, uh, four things. Either one, bear assent given to anything that has been said. This is called historical faith. So this is really um, how uh, how Protestants are going to say that Catholics define faith as historical faith. I think those are analogous uh, concepts right there. Second, assent given to the divine promise of working or receiving miracles, which is called the faith of miracles. Third, assent that in addition stirs up motions of the will that are in some way good but transit, uh, transient. And this is called temporary faith. So first, you just have uh, believing that something uh, is true. Second, you have believing something is true, and then also the divine promises, uh, specifically miracles. And then th third, you have the addition of uh, maybe some uh, good affections uh, towards God. So you have a, a sort of emotionally involved uh, faith. But this, uh, all three of these uh, still, uh, for the Protestant, are not the perfect act of faith. So the perfect act of faith, uh, he says, assent that also stirs up such motions in the will by which we take hold of God as our highest end in Christ as our one and only mediator, which is called saving faith. So saving faith uh, is going to be this uh, grasping hold of God as our true end and then Christ as our mediator. That is true and saving faith, where for, for Catholics, we describe uh, faith, we describe faith as the assent of the intellect on the basis of God revealing. So uh, second, uh, when it comes to their definition of faith, their definition of faith is going to involve all of the faculties of, of the soul, where our definition of faith is going to involve uh, merely the ascent of the uh, intellect. So faith is therefore an act, but of what? Certainly not of the body, although faith is attributed to it in its own way, but of the soul, for with, uh, with the heart one believes, and indeed of the whole soul, if you believe with your whole heart. For it is the first act of life by which the whole person lives spiritually. Moreover, it is an act of each one of our soul's faculties, the intellect, the will, the affections, and so forth. But we have to uh, something that I think Gavin uh, misses. This is not fides formata. This is not formed faith. Uh, and I can prove this by looking towards the authors that were in the period of confessionalization. The, the high scholastic authors, and I grabbed a few of them in, in what they say. They, even while they say that there is this uh, what, what's called fiduciary faith or trustful faith in the, the promises of God grasping a hold of Christ at their final end, this is not faith formed by charity. It isn't. And uh, I grabbed first Richard Muller, and for those who don't know, Richard Muller, he is a, uh, he's a modern scholar. Uh, but he really brought about uh, a lot of the retrieval ethic, uh, efforts of classical uh, reform thought. So Richard Muller, uh, in, de uh, in defining uh, fides formata, uh, he says, uh, fides formata, faith informed by love, that is faith that is animated and instructed by love, and is therefore active in producing good works. According to the medieval doctors, uh, fides uh, caritate formata, could exist only when the believer was in a state of grace. But such fides must rest upon a habit or disposition of love supernaturally created in the soul by grace. Notice what he says here. This conception of faith 
is denied by the reformers and the Protestant Orthodox. And Protestant Orthodox just means uh, the generations after the, the reformers who uh, brought together traditional reformed theology. Insofar as it implies the necessity of works for justification, and insofar as it rests on a concept of a created grace implanted or infused into man. Okay, before uh, we continue, I wanted to let everybody know that yesterday I finally completed my Summa Commentary uh, section on uh, the existence of God. So if you just go to my website, ChristianBWagner.com, go to the uh, Courses tab, you can get access to that. Or if you're a patron, you get access to all of the course videos. So definitely check that out. But continuing. So John Davenant, Bishop John Davenant, he was an early uh, kind of, I'd say early 17th century is really where he got his, uh, he got most of his um, work done. So he was at the Synod of Dort. Uh, he was a pretty uh, famous uh, theologian of the classical English reformed. Uh, he I think that's all all I have to say about him. But he he's no like random theologian. He's actually quite important. But this is in his Colossians commentary. He has a whole section on this, but I kind of just grabbed a grabbed a section. So the last question, which has respect to for faith and love, remains: viz. whether love be so conjoined with faith that it is the form of faith. So notice they're actually explicitly discussing this. Uh, fides formata. So it appeared to Thomas, notice he, he brings up Thomas, so he's recognizing that Thomas uh, believed this, to Durandus and to others of a more recent date, for they imagine faith by itself to be a certain dead and inanimate thing, and whatever it hath of life or merit to be borrowed from love, as from its soul and form. But all these things are fallacious and weak, for first love does not elicit or perfect the proper act of faith, because although they are simultaneous, Yet naturally the act and even the habit of faith precedes the act and habit of love. So we have an explicit denial of uh, what St. Thomas explicitly says is his view of faith alone, at least what the faith part of that means. So now uh, Vermigli, or Vermigli, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, Vermigli is important because he was actually a Roman Catholic uh, theologian. He was an Augustinian friar uh, before he he was an Italian. Uh, he, he took a trip uh, throughout Europe and he ended up going to going to England. I think he I think he took a stop in Geneva. I don't know. The history of his life is is very interesting. Uh, and then he was he was in, ended up at Oxford, I believe, and he taught there. But he was extremely important when it came to the uh, early era of the English Reformed churches. So he says, now, and, and again, as you can see, uh, this is very old uh, spelling conventions in English, so uh, do bear with me. Now let us come to the arguments which our adversaries do use to uh, pro prove sorry, prove charity to be the form of faith. They allege that sentence of Paul unto the Galatians, faith which worketh by love. Seeing, saith they, that faith doth work by charity, the same it shall have instead of a form. Hereof groweth the error of these men, 
that they imagine something to themselves that should be compounded of faith and charity, the which, uh, being all wholly compact of these, might have the first entrance of the working thereof from charity, as from the form. But these device, uh, devices of theirs is vain. This device of theirs is vain. For seeing faith and charity be several uh, virtues, and that one quality, as I have said before, is no form of another, there shall be no one thing compact of these two faculties. Moreover, this manner of speech to which that everything worketh by another thing doth not always respect the form, but sometimes the instruments. The writer writeth by his pen, the soldier fighteth by his weapon, the soul worketh by the body. But all these things they confess to be no forms, but instruments. So, you see here Vermigli explicitly discussing this, and this is just a small part as Davenant of a larger discussion where he is, um, he, uh, Vermigli is arguing against uh, St. Thomas's uh, version of Sola Fide, we may say. And then last, uh, I got one from Turretin. Uh, Turretin, he's a good example of one of the uh, continental reformed uh, Remigli and Davenant are both English. Uh, Turretin was uh, in Geneva. He was actually really at the the, the height of uh, Genevan theology right before its fall, and interestingly under his son, um, who ended up being uh, basically what we could think of as a Protestant modernist. Uh, he was an Enlightenment. His son was an Enlightenment figure who kind of uh, ruined uh, Geneva, but he was one of uh, the the very high Orthodox who were um, doing very intense uh, work in theology, uh, dealing with some of the uh, actually second scholastic authors of Roman Catholic thought. So again, Turretin, no rando. Uh, he he, his his work was actually used at Princeton um, until I think Hodges' uh, text took over. But these guys. Uh, very important. Uh, he's what he represents uh, the sort of Genevan strain of Reformed theology. Although really there aren't uh, strains, uh, there there's some minor disagreements between the continent and then England, but nothing uh, super major. But this is what Turretin says: the Romanists approve that faith considered in itself does not justify, but borrows its whole power of justifying from love. Distinguish faith into formed and unformed. They term that unformed, which is separated from love, informed that which is perfected by love as a form, which the scholastics laboriously strive to establish and then uh, confer Lombard sentences, uh, book three, distinction 23. They hold indeed that there is in it whatever is necessary to belief, but that love ought also to be in it and concur with it to our vivification, justification before God. But because they see it can be opposed to them, that faith has its own eternal form by which it's constituted and becomes true faith and is distinguished from others and so cannot be informed by love, which is a distinct virtue from it. And then so on. He's bringing forth the same argument that both Davenant and, uh, and Vermigli are bringing against it. So that is, uh, that's the last slide I have for you. I only brought forward these four authors. I don't have, I didn't, I didn't have a bunch that I was going to, seek through, but I know uh, Davenant talks about it in his lectures on justification, and I'm sure I could dig through a lot of um, a lot of the English divines talking about this from Newman's uh, lectures on justification, where Newman actually discusses this question. But let me look through any comments. 
Which one claims that as long as you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll go straight to heaven no matter what you do? I don't think I don't think that's accurate uh, when it comes to the uh, the classical reform because as you saw they they would say that love is at least something which is concomitant uh, with faith so that that you that the virtues can't uh, be so separated um, so they they wouldn't say uh, that you would be able to do sort of whatever you want. Isn't your answer yes, but a different idea of fide? Yes, exactly. Did Gavin really say that Aquinas taught sola fide? Yes, he did. Gavin says Augustine supported sola scriptura. Although there's some text from St. Thomas that you could uh, contrive as saying that he believed in sola scriptura as well, uh, such as the one from the Galatians commentary, then there's another from... I think it's Summa Theologiae, um, Prima Pars, Question 1, Article, either Article 8 or 9, and that's the second response to the second objection. There's a famous one. So that looks like that's all. Thank you, and I'm going to get back to my other work. But God bless.